Judges chapter 10. I'm sure when children are wanting to hear the stories about the judges, they probably want to hear about Samson and Jephthah and Ehud, uh, but they probably don't bring up Tola and Jer that much. So um, uh, we'll look at Tola and Jer tonight as well as kind of the introduction to the Jephthah narrative, but um, there is, uh, it's all part of the same narrative, so we'll just look at chapter 10 tonight. Uh, We'll begin reading at verse 1. After Abimelech there arose to save Israel Tola the son of Pua, the son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he dwelt in Shamir in the mountains of Ephraim. He judged Israel 23 years, and he died and was buried in Shamir. After him arose Jer, a Gileadite, and he judged Israel 22 years. Now he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. They also had 30 towns, which are called Havoth-Jer to this day which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Cammon. Then the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. From that year, they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. So the Lord said to the the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians, and from the Amorites, and from the people of Ammon, and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians, and Amalekites, and Maanites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods, therefore I will deliver you no more. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen, let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. Then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead. And the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the uh, the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who would begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Amen. Well, God's grace truly is amazing, especially when you consider how unfaithful and how weak our own faith and our own repentance truly is. Often our repentance isn't so much a brokenness over sin, but sometimes it can be a cry of relief so that the pain can stop. That has been Israel's problem throughout the judges. Their cry has not been one of sorrow over sin, but they have this desire to be relieved from their pain. And that doesn't change here when we come to the situation with Ammon and we come to the situation uh, that leads into the narrative with Jephthah. Israel has demonstrated their degeneration into sin. Yahweh has demonstrated his mighty salvation. Those are the two major themes that go side by side, the wickedness of Israel, but yet we see the salvation of the Lord. We see these cycles that happen throughout the book but there does seem to be a progression throughout the book as well 
as Israel continues to be more and more Canaanized. And so today we come, which be, uh, come and begin the Jephthah and really the Samson narrative. The two kind of go hand in hand. Uh, really chapters 10 through 16 deal with these two ma- major judges, but we also see uh, some minor judges sprinkled throughout as well. Major and minor just distinguishing how much ink is spilt uh, on said judges. And so we see Israel continues to degenerate. We see how many gods they serve, especially here in chapter 10. We see that their idolatry really is disastrous. We see how far they have gone. They really do demonstrate uh, that they have become like the nations that surround them. They really do look like all of the peoples that are around them. They really have degenerated into a Canaanite nation. And as we saw last time, uh, the word God is used instead of Yahweh uh, as God brings judgment upon Israel and upon Shechem, uh, sorry, upon Shechem and Abimelech. There was this problem within and God, not Yahweh, although he is Yahweh. But the point uh, is that God is used to show that Israel is functioning like a Canaanite nation rather than the people of Israel. And so the problem is very clear. There are many gods that Israel is worshiping, many idols that they try to appease and many idols that they try to worship in order to get what they want. But there's also many forgotten deliverances. There's been many times they have forgotten the salvation of the Lord. It's no surprise seven gods are mentioned and seven salvations are mentioned as well. We see the many idols of man and certainly the true people of God in this present age still struggle with idolatry, but we can also be a forgetful people of the mercies of God, forgetful of the goodness of God, and forgetful of the salvation that he has brought for wretches like us. That's why it's good to be reminded of Christ and all that he has done for undeserving people. That's why the gospel uh, brings life, but also continues to bring life uh, for the people of God in this present age. And so, Uh, In Judges 10, Yahweh exposes the heartless repentance of Israel by reminding them of their many gods and his many salvations. It is a heartless repentance. They know what to say. They know the words to use. But as we'll see, it's not going to be a true repentance. It's not going to be a true turning. And so he exposes this by what he says. He exposes this by reminding them, here are the many gods you have served, but also here are the many salvations that I have brought, and yet you have not served me. So we'll look at this this exposing of Israel's heartlessness, uh, this reminder of their apostasy under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see salvation after Abimelech in verses 1 through 5. And then secondly, we'll see idolatry after salvation in verses 6 through 18. So salvation after Abimelech, or we could say salvation after destruction. And then secondly, we'll see idolatry after salvation. So let's first look at salvation after Abimelech, or we could say salvation after destruction. And notice the first thing that is said in chapter 10, verse 1, that links chapter 10 with the preceding narrative. After Abimelech, there arose one to save. We saw how Abimelech, we saw the legacy of Gideon's son. Remember, he is the son of the concubine in Shechem. He slaughters his brothers, except one gets away, Jotham. 
The men of Shechem uh, want to make him king. They make him king instead of uh, perhaps another one of Gideon's sons. So he, he takes power and Jotham then likens him to a bramble. How the men of Shechem could have had all these other kings and yet... Uh, They chose this bramble, this one that could give them shade. And if he doesn't give them shade, then he is going to light them up. He is going to burn them. And the irony is brambles don't give shade at all. They don't provide protection at all. We see that Abimelech is a vengeful man. Uh, We see that he brings judgment upon Shechem, which is what God said he would do. But then we see God bring judgment upon Abimelech. We see how God... Uh, 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 humiliates him by way of this woman who brings her millstone all the way up this tower and drops it on his head and he says to his armor bearer please thrust me through uh, lest I die at the hands of a woman and so he dies in a humiliating way and the Lord has the last word in verses 56 and 57 God repaid the wickedness of Abimelech and remember Abimelech means my God is king or my father is king Uh, which he had done to his father by killing his 70 brothers and all the evil of the man of Shechem, God returned on their own heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jerubbaal. So we see that Abimelech is the destroyer of Israel. We see that there's issues within. We see that there's infighting. We see that rather than uh, uh, the enemy from without being their problem in chapter 9, it was within. And so he is this destroyer of Israel And notice, after the chaos, after the instability, after Abimelech, there arose to save Israel, Tola. You see, we do see God's grace throughout this book. We see a lot of Israel's wickedness, but the main thing to see is God's amazing grace. After all the wickedness, after all the treachery, after all the bloodshed, after all the vileness, we see God's grace by way of two obscure minor judges. We see after judgment, there is salvation. And there isn't much that is said about these men. There isn't much that is uh, divulged, uh, but nonetheless, we see that perhaps there is some stability with them. We see his name is Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. That's an unfortunate name to have. Uh, A man of Issachar. So he's of the tribe of Issachar. We do seem to see that Many judges rise up at different times from different tribes. So Issachar, uh, uh, Tola is of the tribe of Issachar. And he dwells in Shemir in the mountains of Ephraim. And notice he judged 23 years. He judges a long time. Jephthah is only going to be six years. But there's a lot of ink spilt uh, with respect to Jephthah. So we see this obscure one. We see a lot of the same language used in Judges 2 and with the other judges to show what a judge is. God arises, God raises up, God saves and delivers, and then they judge. They rule in such a way, they rule after salvation, and he brings some sense of stability for 23 years, and then he died and was buried in Shamir. Now again, he's an obscure man, but he seems to do better uh, than most of the judges. We see this one who we don't know much about, yet he does seem to be. There isn't much said about him, positive or negative, uh, but there is a lot that is said, but what the primary focus is on the positive things that he does. He brings salvation, and he does judge for quite some time. I must confess, when sometimes we think about preachers, when we think about famous men, I must confess, sometimes the famous men that we know of aren't that impressive to me. 
Not that I'm the arbiter of who's impressive or not, but the reality is some men I hear, some men that people fawn all over, I'm not that impressed by with their delivery or with their understanding. And it may be the case, as I've heard, that the best preacher of all time is the one we've never heard about. The one we've never heard, the one who's just been faithful throughout his entire life, the one we don't know much about. Kind of like Tola, kind of like Jer, the ones that we do not know much about. So there is this stability here. He does bring salvation. Uh, There is some goodness uh, demonstrated by Yahweh through Tola. But also there is stability demonstrated uh, with Jer. We could say a relative stability. And this is what we see in verses 3 through 5. So again, not much is said about him. Uh, we see that his name is Jer. He's a Gileadite. And remember the men of Gilead were on the eastern side. Remember Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. They took their inheritance on the eastern side. And so again, we see some movement. We see another one from a different tribe. And so he's of Gilead. Uh, And he judged Israel 22 years, so 23 years and then 22 years. And so uh, there is possible contrast here between him and Jephthah. We see he's got 30 sons. And we see later on as the Jephthah narrative is kind of bookended with these two with these two uh, 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 pericopes, these two sections that deal with minor judges. And we see that there's 30 sons here, and there's going to be 30 sons with another minor judge. How many kids does Jephthah have? One daughter. And so there is this bookending that is going on. And perhaps we also see that there is some contrasting because Jer is of Gilead and Jephthah is of Gilead as well. And so we see relative stability with Jer, but also a lot of instability with Jephthah, who is an outlaw. Now, again, Jephthah is going to be used to bring about deliverance for the people of God. But still, we see that there's a lot of issues that arise even amongst the deliverer in chapter 11. Now, there is still some issue or perhaps we could say uh, an implicit negativity, although that not, that's not necessarily the case. Again, there's no commentary in verses 4 and 5 with respect to the greed of Jer, but we see he's kind of similar to Gideon. Remember Gideon didn't want the kingship, but then Gideon all of a sudden had 70 sons through many wives. And so we see he's got 30 sons. So that implies he probably has multiple wives. So he's kind of functioning like a king. He has some wealth. He has some notoriety. Now again, wealth isn't necessarily wrong. And again, there isn't any comments about it being negative. But we do see that Gideon loved his notoriety. And so perhaps there's an implicit kind of warning against notoriety. He had 30 towns which are called Havoth Jer to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jer died and was buried in Cainon. So there is this perhaps implicit warning, but at the same time it shows there is stability. That should be the main thing to take, take away. God provides stability through these two obscure judges. Tola and Jer. Now, the one thing to take away, again, when we go through Judges and we look at Tola and Jer, I do try to think through application and what that looks like. And I mean, sometimes it's hard when you read about Tola and Jer. How do we bring about uh, some application? But I think the important thing to see here is the grace of the Lord. The grace of the Lord and also some good 
warnings regard, uh, regarding our service to God or warnings with respect to how we ought to serve our God. We see God's goodness. After Abimelech, he brings a deliverer. And notice again, we see the Lord who brings a deliverer from what? We don't necessarily know, but he brings deliverance from chaos. He brings deliverance from judgment. He brings deliverance from issues that have arisen uh, among the people of God. It's deliverance from within. And if the Lord then delivers us, if the Lord then protects us, the Lord then humbles us, we ought then to serve him without pomp. That's hard, isn't it? To serve the Lord without pride. To serve the Lord without wanting to be seen. We all want to be seen. We all want to be noticed. Davis, uh, the reason I like Davis is because he's a real guy. He's not filled with all this uh, mumbo-jumbo, highfalutin language, this pious language all the time. He says, in all our ways, there is this subtle urge to secure our position, to display our status, to extend our influence, to guarantee our recognition. Christ's servants seldom care to be servants. We have never gotten over the garden. Our program to unseat the true king has a way of slipping out from behind our largest fig leaves. Now, brethren, when we serve with pomp, when there's arrogance, we confess that to Christ and there's mercy and forgiveness. It doesn't mean that we don't serve. It doesn't mean we don't seek to honor our God. We just ask that we forgive us for the times and many often the times where we have poor motives with respect to our service. God is gracious. God is good. God has redeemed us. Therefore, we ought to serve him, especially as he saved us out of judgment. So that is salvation after Abimelech or salvation after destruction. You probably surmised that that was going to be a shorter point. Uh, so our second point will be a little bit longer. This is idolatry after salvation in verses 6 through 18. Idolatry after salvation. And notice the many, many idols of Israel in verses 6 through 9. Notice how they plunged into a Canaanite sort of all-encompassing sort of sin. That is the reason all these gods are mentioned. There perhaps is some connection, not necessarily a one-for-one, one, but seven nations are mentioned in Deuteronomy 7-1 as the people were supposed to drive out the nations. And now we see the Israel is following after seven gods. They're following primarily after Baal, but we see that they're trying to not just follow after Baal, but follow after the many gods of the nations around them. And again, it's after deliverance, after salvation. You see, Israel was, should have, after God redeemed them, continued to be faithful, continued to be dependable. But they were not. God delivered, and then they go after other gods. They continually spit in the face of God's goodness. They continually trample on the holiness of God and trample on his deliverances. The children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals, and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. Many idols, many gods, many different things that they were trying to worship. And they forsook the Lord, and they did not serve him. They have not kept the covenant. They did not honor God according to the terms of Deuteronomy, according to that law which he laid out in very clear detail on how they ought to honor and glorify him. They failed miserably with it. 
And so what does the Lord do? Now, again, this cycle isn't surprising. We've seen these cycles, sin, oppression, and then we see deliverance. But the amount of idols is new. They had their own internal problems. Uh, Initially in chapter 9, they had some reprieve with the obscure guys, but now they just sin again. They forsake him. So what does Yahweh do? Well, like in the other parts of Judges, he brings uh, judgment. He brings punishment. We see his anger, verse 7. So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, we know Yahweh is righteous in his anger, but the last time the anger was specifically mentioned was in Judges 3.8. At the beginning with Othniel, when the people first did it, God was angry with them. And now when the people do it again here, God is angry with them. Not saying God isn't angry in the other times, but uh, different things are drawn out in different sections. And so at this point, the author is drawing out the anger of the Lord. He is angry with them, and we're going to see his response to them in verses 11 uh, through 16. So he's angry, and so what does he do? Like he did before, he, uh, similar to what he did before, he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. Jephthah is going to deal with Ammon. Samson is going to deal with the Philistines, although we certainly see... Uh, that the people of Israel um, uh, were delivered into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years in 13.1. So again, setting the stage both for Jephthah and perhaps precursor uh, to Samson as well. But in any case, the people are under captivity again. They're under oppression again. And we see the harassment, verse 8. From that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So again, the eastern side seems to be the main place that is affected. But uh, the Ammonites still go and deal uh, and, and try to distress, severely distress the mainland as well. We see that in verse 9. Moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. So the primary distress is Gilead on the eastern side, uh, but Ammon crosses over and causes problems for the mainland as well. And so God brings this about because of the many idols of Israel. And one of the main problems, again, is that Israel has forgotten the many salvations of the Lord. This is what the Lord brings up in verses 10 through 18, the many salvations that he brings. And notice we see the confession. And I want to do air quotes with the confession. Their confession of sin in verse 10. Perhaps we just get a a bigger picture, a more fleshed out uh, picture of what they could have been saying other times as well. But notice verse 10. And I want to point out that repentance, the word that is used for repentance, is never actually used. In this chapter. It is never actually used in these verses. People look at what they're saying. They say we have sinned. That's good. They've recognized that. Because we have both forsaken our God. And served the Baals. However they never ask for forgiveness. And they never seek God's grace. We're going to see their motive. For why they say what they say in verse 15. 
And you'll notice in verses 11 through 14, Yahweh's not having any of it. Yahweh knows their hearts. Yahweh knows why they're saying what they're saying. Yahweh knows their mercenary spirit. Daniel Block says we must read on to find out whether or not this is more than a utilitarian manipulation of deity to be delivered from a painful situation or authentic heartfelt repentance. It's not an authentic heartfelt repentance. It's utilitarian. We're going to say what we want to say. We're going to say what we think the deity wants to hear in order to get what we wish. They're using holy and pious language to manipulate Yahweh. And as we see, Yahweh exposes it. They are not broken over their sin. There's not sorrow over their sin. They're going to say whatever they need to in order to have the pain stop. That's why, again, we've seen the cycles are sin, oppression, deliverance. Not sin, oppression, repentance, and deliverance. They're crying out in distress, crying out in pain, not crying out, seeking God's uh, forgiveness and seeking God's grace. They want to be delivered from their plight. And Yahweh sees all this, verses 11 through 14. Because notice the main issue. The main issue is not so much that they need to put away their gods all day they need to do that. It's that after God delivers them, they go back to Baal. That's the key problem, isn't it? God is kind. God is gracious. You can't say when you read the Old Testament, God is not gracious. The problem is the people are vile. The problem is the people are forgetful. The problem is we see that people trample on the goodness of God. And so Yahweh says, verse 11, The Lord said to the children of Israel, Did did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? That obviously refers back to the Exodus. Did I not deliver you from the Amorites? That refers to the time where they they were delivered from Sion and Og on the eastern side of the Jordan and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines. Ammon and the Philistines, uh, 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 or Ammon was working with Moab, probably refers back to the situation with Ehud in chapter 3. Shamgar kills a bunch of Philistines. Now we know that Samson's going to hammer down some Philistines and, you know, David's going to fight some Philistines. But God does deliver the people by way of Shamgar from the Philistines. Sidonians probably refers to Barak and the deliverance he brings. And then the Amalekites and the Mountainites, or probably what it's referring to is the Midianites. We know that comes by way of deliverance by Gideon. We see Israel's sin. We see their sin. Uh, we see their wickedness. We see first God delivering them by way of the exodus. We see their grumbling and complaining throughout the wanderings. We see that God delivered them from Sion and Og. We see their continual cycles and needing deliverers to be raised up, which God does. God is good. I delivered you from their hand. Yet, verse 13, this is the main point. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. That's the key problem. They're not dependable. They're not, they're not faithful throughout their entire life. They're not faithful throughout their entire history. They're not faithful in any sort of way. Here's God's kindness, and yet Israel's motive. We want to be delivered in this moment, so we're going to say what we wish to say. And so then he kind of mocks them. 
We see, or, uh, so he says, I will deliver you no more. And certainly that highlights how God is judging them. That's the problem. That's the key uh, serious thing they need to know when it comes to judgment is that God, they're not going to have that connection with Yahweh anymore. That is, that's what judgment brings. It brings enmity with God. It brings separation. I will deliver you no more. I am not going to do it. I know your ways. Go and cry out to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. He's mocking them. Here's all your gods, the Baals and the Asherahs. You go serve them. Go ask them. They're the ones that you worshipped. Let's see if they will give you the help that you think that they can give, or at least you thought they could bring and thought that they could give. So Yahweh rightly recognizes their motive. And then we see their motive exposed more. Verse 15. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. Again, no plea for forgiveness and no plea for grace. Notice they are making a holy deal with God. They're negotiating with God. If you can do this one thing, then I will serve you. That's the problem, isn't it? We can't keep our vows. That's the problem. We can never serve God perfectly and perpetually all the days of our life. That's why we need a deliverer who did. We need a deliverer who is perfect in every way because our own repentance and our own faith is weak. This is what Davis calls bomb shelter theology. He says, The theology of bomb shelter religion teaches that, of course... God will help you in your need, that he is helpfully enough, incredibly naive, and hopelessly soft. He's like a great warm vending machine in the sky, into which you need only drop a token or two of repentance before he spits out the relief you currently crave. Yahweh must destroy these false images we fashion of him. Israel apparently assumed that whatever things became, whenever things became too bad, she could always go back to Yahweh. And he says that she cannot. There is a difference between a prodigal who comes to his senses and returns home and a whore who pleads for her husband's security only until she finds someone else to take her on. That's what Israel is like. Yahweh delivers them one day and then they go after Baal another day. That is the key problem. They are not faithful to the end. They are not focused to the end. They do not trust in God to the end. They just want a quick deliverance to get out of their pain. And God does, in the end, later on in their history, God judges them because of their wickedness. God judges them and sends them into captivity because of their vileness. That's why it's important for when we call sinners to believe, we want them to close with Christ, to believe upon Christ. There is a warning for all unbelievers. If they have not believed on Christ, they will die in their trespasses and sins. It's a warning for those who come and hear the word of God. If they have not believed on Christ, they will die in their trespasses and sins. It's not the experiences that save you, but the God of grace. What I mean by that is, sometimes people have these near-death experiences, 
And they're like, wow, I was delivered from this moment. Now I want to be religious. Now I want to talk to God. But you must close with Christ. You must believe upon him. You must look to him by faith. Not just because you're, wow, I was saved. Wow, isn't that? No, believe upon Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon him by faith. Because our repentance is tainted. Our good works is tainted. We need to believe on a Christ who is perfect in every way. And so they respond. And again, this is good. But again, it's not, you know, how long? How long will they do it? Verse 10. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they serve the Lord. Again, good. But for how long? Now, we know God is righteous in his judgment and righteous in his anger. But we also know that he is a God who's very gracious. And I think we do see this in 16b to 18. Now, I must confess, the latter part of verse 16 is very hard to translate. There seems to be a positive spin, and most people view it as a positive spin, highlighting the grace of God. And for the most part, I think I go that way as well. His soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. So it sounds like the author is speaking in the manner of men to highlight how God is going to relieve the misery of Israel. However, it could be translated, his soul is vexed, his soul is frustrated with the toil of Israel. That it could be the case as Israel continually toils and pleads with him and whines and asks for help. He is vexed by that very thing. I don't think that, that that's outlandish. When you consider what the word toil means. I mean it's used in Ecclesiastes to refer to toiling. The vexing language, the same idea of soul shortened is, is the literal translation. It's used in 1616. When Delilah just continually pesters Samson. And it says that it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words. Israel pestering God daily with her words so that his soul was vexed to death. So they could highlight the frustration of Yahweh with Israel's perpetual vexing in what they do. It's also used in Numbers 21. Similar sort of language, this shortening of the soul this vexing of the soul when Israel provokes the Lord. In Deuteronomy, uh, sorry, Numbers 21, this is with that bronze serpent. We see as they journeyed from Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged or very distressed, same language, on the way. And what did they do? They provoked the Lord. They spoke against God and against Moses. All this is to say that it's a very difficult verse to translate. Daniel Block does take it more as that negative. Yahweh is frustrated with the perpetual vending machine type response by the people of Israel. Treating him like he's their holy horseshoe or their rabbit's foot, or their genie in a bottle, rather in the Lord who has saved them. It's not that outlandish. However, I do also think that those who view the goodness of God and his goodness to save 
uh, it could also be in view. The word amal, which is the word for misery, can refer to hard, hard work or labor, but it can, also, it can also refer to misery. And the similar language uh, is used in a sort of positive way in Deuteronomy 26, verse 7, where he's talking about the deliverance from Egypt. So they're drawing our attention all the way back to when Israel cried out to the Lord in their bondage under Pharaoh. Verse 7, Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. And so a lot of other men do view it as a positive, uh, uh, the goodness of God demonstrating, speaking in the manner of men to highlight his grace, to highlight his infinite and eternal love, then demonstrated by that deliverance. Uh, but really it could either way is perfectly legitimate as far as translation goes. And either way is perfectly legitimate as far as context goes, because... Israel does function that way. They're pestering him, and then he stops speaking, right? He, he stops speaking. But then we also see him deliver, bring up Jephthah, or raise up Jephthah uh, to deliver the people. And so Gil certainly takes it as that goodness of God. Davis takes it that way as well. Gil says, which is to be understood after the manner of men, for grief properly does not belong to God, there being no passion in him, but it denotes a carriage or behavior of his, which shows uh, what looks like sympathy in men. A love and affection for Israel, notwithstanding their ill behavior to him, and a change of his dispensations, providence towards them according to his unchangeable will. So God is good, though. In what, however way you take that, God still does raise up a deliverer, despite God knowing their hearts, despite God knowing their heartless repentance, despite God knowing that they are not engaging in true repentance. Repentance is sorrow for sin. Sorry for, not sorry for uh, that. Uh, as, as one uh, uh, commentator says, I'm sorry that this happened versus I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry that this happened, but I'm sorry for what I have done. Lord, please forgive me. Please help me. Please be gracious to us. That's not the case. Only deliver us to this day, we pray. That is their motive. They want deliverance this day. And it's never good to play the, I will do this if you do this for me type of holy negotiation. Uh, that many, I think many pagans try to do this. I'm sure many Christians, we unfortunately do this many times as well. You know, that's not the way we ought to function. Many times, even for us, our repentance can be filled with this manipulation. Be filled with this, we don't want to endure what we're enduring. And God is good and God is gracious. But, you know, it just goes to show you how depraved man is and how amazing and gracious God is. Because he does raise up a deliverer. This is the occasion of the deliverer in verses 17 and 18. We'll look at Jephthah uh, next time, Lord willing. People of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people of the leaders of Gilead said to one another, Who is the man who will begin uh, the fight against the people of Ammon? 
He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Who will go and fight for us? Who will deliver us? And the answer to that question is Jephthah. Now, I do think the application we can take away from this, again, is the goodness of God and the salvation of the Lord. And when you consider what he does in light of our sin, again, how depraved man truly is. Again, we see this repeated cycle of Israel, and we see how tainted everything we do is. Everything we do is tainted. We are forgiven in Christ. We are redeemed in Christ. Even for the people of God, we are redeemed, but not yet consummated. We are redeemed, but we do not yet have a heavenly body. And so we still struggle with this remaining corruption. Is there ever a thing that we do that isn't tainted? Is there ever a thing that we do that isn't filled with pride or isn't filled with an impure motive? I mean, brethren, we just have to be honest with ourselves with that very idea. We never do anything out of a pure motive. And so we need to thank God and recognize Christ and what he has done for us, that he has died for our sins, for all of our sins, even when the things that we do are tainted and filled with impure motives. Because all this is meant to teach us how sufficient our Savior is. He is the once-for-all sacrifice for all of our sins. That is the main point of the book of Hebrews, especially Hebrews chapter 10. He is the once-for-all sacrifice for a wretched people for all of our sins. He is sufficient for a people with a tainted repentance. He is sufficient for a people who aren't always broken over their sins. Now think about Peter for a moment. Peter did cry over his sin once he had to go through that harsh trial and that harsh uh, um, dark providence by denying his Lord. But in that moment, he doesn't say, Lord, please forgive me. He He just cries. He just cries. His tears are the repentance that we see. His tears are the repentance that God accepts because God is gracious and good. Sometimes we put on people more than perhaps even God does for us. They need to be broken over their sin. And yes, we want people to seek to to know their sin, know their sinfulness, to have sorrow over sin. But it's almost like they need to wail for 15 days or something like that sometimes. No, they need to look to Christ. They need to flee to him and find mercy and forgiveness in him. The same thing is true when we struggle with sin. Brethren, you know what you ought to do? Flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Look to your Savior, find mercy and forgiveness in Him, and then press on. Whether we realize it or not, sometimes we can function like a monk. We can function like ascetics. We have to do this penitence for like five days before we feel like we can come. No, Christ died for all of our sins. Go to Christ. Flee to Christ. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one we can go to and we confess our sins to God because he is faithful and just to cleanse us, uh, forgive us, and cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. And thanks be to God for Christ, who is the one who toiled for us. And we'll close by reading Isaiah 53. He really is the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He really is the one who has oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. But in verses 10 through 11, and especially in verse 11, we see that same word for misery, but it's used here in the context of labor. What does he do? 
He is, a, he is a suffering servant, but he is a successful servant. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. He is the one who worked. He is the one who labored. He is the one who lived a perfect life. And he is the one who received satisfaction for what he accomplished. And thankfully, we are that satisfaction. That we are that people that has been given to him. We are that people that he worked for. We are his trophies of grace. Not because we're good. Not because of the strength of our repentance. But because of the strength and sufficiency of our Christ. And that is what we can learn as we study the obscure passage of Tola and Jer and the introduction to the situation with Jephthah, Jephthah, we can see how sufficient our Savior is. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for what you teach us concerning Christ, how all the law and the prophets, all the Old Testament points to our Savior, and even the many judges uh, who are imperfect men point to that perfect Savior. Uh, We are thankful that you forgive us for all of our sins, forgive us for impure motives, forgive us for tainted motives, forgive us for weak faith, and forgive us for weak repentance. And we are thankful that they are accepted in Christ, that if we look to Christ by faith, that we are saved. We are thankful for the words that Paul said to that Philippian jailer, look, uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And and as uh, uh, Jesus applied that, that, that serpent, bronze serpent narrative, that bronze serpent to himself, uh, as the Old Testament people looked and were healed, so too do, can sinners look to Christ and be saved. And so we are thankful for what you do. We are thankful for what you bring. We are thankful for the labor of Christ uh, and the satisfaction uh, that is given to him, that he is the one who receives according to his labor We are thankful that you are satisfied, O God, because of his perfect sacrifice. And we are thankful that we can approach you. We can be of communion with you. We are not separated from you uh, because of Jesus Christ and his sufficient work. So thank you for his sufficiency. We ask and pray that you would help us by your spirit to serve you and to honor you and glorify you. Help us to serve you as we worship. Help us to serve you in our lives. And we pray that we'd be quick to seek forgiveness and that we wouldn't be function like monks or ascetics or Roman Catholics, uh, but that we would recognize we can go to Christ and know that we have forgiveness in him and know that we have the spirit to help us press on uh, in this present fallen world. So give us the strength and encouragement we need. Thank you for the salvation uh, that you bring and be with us tonight, we pray in the name of Christ. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Amen.